All right, hello and welcome back to Unqualified Analysis. The show is zero qualifications, zero credentials. It just keeps firing off takes anyways because got a microphone for me, a brand new one. Again, thank you and shout out to my sister and her girlfriend for getting me this sweet-ass mic. I'm going to thank them till the cows come home, quite frankly. Uh, either way, got a loaded college football episode for you. Second to last college football episode of the season right now. Well, actually, wait a second. Got the uh, the national championship on the Monday after next? Yeah, yeah, second to last college football episode. Uh, well, actually, nah, third to last. Third to last because I got to do the, the national championship. I don't know. We're getting right towards the end of college football season. You know what I mean. And for today, we got a little... <coughs> excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. I uh, got something stuck in my crawl there. Uh, for today, though, we got a loaded... Uh, second half of the bowl slate for you. Well, half is kind of an interesting word to use there. More of uh, just the New Year's Six being chock full of playoff teams and uh, some very, very good New Year's Six bowls. In addition to my bo- my boys Mississippi State coming out there and doing their thing as well. But hey, we got the playoffs almost upon us. Mississippi State saying goodbye to Mike Leach one more time on the field and great QB matchups across the board on this uh, finale of the bowl season preview. Uh, but before we get into any of that, got to wrap up week, what is it, 16 now in the NFL? Uh, let's just get to that, that, uh, that Monday night game just very briefly. The Monday Night Recap. And I do mean very briefly. No need to spend an excessive amount of time on this one. I could have stuck with my original underpick and been perfectly fine because even without Derwin James, uh, because, you know, he decided to launch his head into a human being like you just simply can't do anymore. Uh, he got ejected early. Even without him in the lineup, the Chargers defense dominated the Colts in this game. Uh, Khalil Mack had his first sack in what feels like five years at this point. Uh, being a little bit harsh there, but he's had quite a cold streak here recently. Broke that against the Colts and, uh, whole lot of other players on the Chargers defense broke their their uh, sackless streak, I guess you could say. Uh, not even sure if that's that's legit, but that is all to say, uh, Colts offensive line was terrible last night, and the Chargers remind us once again why Nick Foles was the backup to Matt Ryan in the first place as they cruised to a 20-3 win over the sad, sad Colts, and I'm a sad, sad little boy because I bet on the over uh, for Michael Pittman receptions at 5.5, so I have Four whole dollars in my FanDuel account right now. Feels good. Feels feels good. Feels nice. Uh, I, I digress, though. For everyone's benefit, I'm just going to skip the Colts analysis because it's all bad, it's very depressing, and I just don't feel like piling on a team that everyone already knew wasn't good in the first place. I'm, a, I'm okay with exposing some frauds out there when people are praising them when they don't need to. But I'm not a pylon guy. You, you notice how I haven't really talked about uh, the Broncos too much as the season has gone on. It's because they're a bad team and they should be bad in peace for the most part. Uh, outside of, you know, I do have to talk about them every once in a while. So I will tell you how it is. But I don't. I'm not a big pylon guy for the most part. I will. I will say my piece and then uh, move on uh, when it gets too sad for me to keep paying attention. Uh, that being said, as for the winners, however. It hasn't exactly been pretty every week, but hats off to Brandon Staley. The Chargers are going to the playoffs. They clinched their spot with this win. They're 9-6. and six. Uh, Rough start, but they have really kicked it in as of late. And they got there by fighting through some crazy injury luck at all levels, really. I mean, offense, defense, front seven, O-line, basically every level you can think of, they have major injuries at all of them. I mean, Herbert has been inconsistent. 
but he's been in the lineup one, hasn't been out of there at all. And look what he's had to work with at his disposal. I mean, just th- just in this season, Keenan Allen popped a hammy in like week one, wasn't reintroduced into the lineup until the end of October. Uh, Mike Williams has missed extended time with a high ankle sprain. He had to get tightrope ro- tight surgery, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Rashawn Slater tore his biceps tendon early in the season. Haven't seen him at all. Uh, interestingly enough, the running game actually got better after that. I don't know why, but uh, not sure if that has to do with Rashawn Slater. going. I, th- I think losing an all-pro tackle invariably hurts your running game. I could be wrong on that one. Might be a hot take, but again, I digress. And that's before I even mention any of the injuries on the defensive side because they lost Joey Bosa. Um, just They had Der- Derwin James out for a couple games, I want to say, and really just up and down the roster, they've had a bunch of injuries. It's just... It's been a skeleton crew all season, but Brandon Staley, Justin Herbert, and Austin Eckler have just carried this team to where they're at now. It hasn't been pretty. Sometimes it's been downright ugly, but they just find a way to win games down the stretch with a little dose of spectacular every now and again from Justin Herbert. He is so good in spite of what his numbers may be saying. I know I've historically given this team shit, but if you're going to dish it, Going to dish out that criticism. Got to give credit when it's earned. Otherwise, no one's going to take you seriously. You're just going to turn into Skip Bayless at the end of the day. So I got to give credit here. This was a fantastic coaching job from Brandon Staley. I've given him a whole lot of shit about his weird fourth down calls, and I still don't agree with a whole lot of them. Uh, That being said, he is still very smart at scheming up a defense, and he has found a way in the situational decision-making to not abjectly kill the team. So that needs credit where it's due. And in spite of the inconsistent numbers, Justin Herbert has carried this team to victory in a lot of clutch situations. He hasn't necessarily been good for three and a half quarters of a game, but when you need him in clutch time situations at the end of each half, he is absolute money, and that has not changed at all this season. Don't even get me started on Austin Eckler, man. In an era where versatility is the focal point of development with most running backs, Eckler is unique in his level of versatility, man. He dices up linebackers in coverage. He's got very natural catching ability, and he can still do all the stuff that you would ask a a traditional running back to do out of the backfield as far as, you know, doing his job running between the tackles and whatnot. If the Chargers had a better offensive line, I think this could have been an all-time crazy number season for Austin Eckler. But even without that, he has been dominant all year. I'd be shocked if he didn't end up getting to 100 receptions. Uh, he'll probably be over 1,000 rushing yards. But even so, a lot of his his most uh, high-leverage touches are through the passing game. I mean, he, he's had multiple games this season where he's caught double-digit balls, and that's just not something you usually see from a running back. I mean, maybe Christian McCaffrey every now and again, uh, Alvin Kamara, you might see that happen, but it's only a handful of guys in the NFL that you, you get a lot of them who can catch, but it's only a couple of them who can catch that many balls in a game without having some some bad dropsies, if you will. Um, that that being said, it's not, a, not just a heartwarming story of perseverance, where an utterly depleted team just gets smacked in the first round of the playoffs uh, because they simply don't have the bodies to compete with the team they go up against. This That's not the case at all here. Many of those key players that I just mentioned that went on IR have been re-entered, either re-entered the lineup already and are playing at a high level, or they're rumored to be making a return. Allen and Williams both gotten healthier. I'm not sure you can necessarily get fully healthy in the course of a season though that's that's what they'll call it probably not an injury designation on either of those guys but they're probably banged up to a certain extent but they're playing and they're playing at a high level both of them Williams in particular I mean you 
we already know he's a damn good jump ball receiver, right? But the way he's been able to run after the catch, especially in that Monday night game versus the Colts, I was very impressed with that. Uh, those guys getting back into the fold has made the passing offense just fantastic. Justin Herbert has been dealing. And rumors are all pro, all pro left tackle Rashawn Slater may return for the playoffs from that torn biceps, which uh, that would be huge for that aforementioned offensive line and running game. Though, Running game wasn't quite as good as you may think early this year when he was in the lineup, but I think a lot of that has to do with kind of easing into the season and your style of running the football. I think when Rashawn Slater gets back in there, it's only going to help that running game, and man, Austin Eckler has been good without him in there and behind a very bad offensive line, but if you got a legit all-pro player on one side that you can just run behind when you need to. That is a that is a weapon and a best friend for running back. I'll tell you that right now. And what's more, on the defensive side, Joey Boza may return as soon as this coming week uh, to once again pair opposite of Khalil Mack, who has struggled without his, his running mate recently. I will say that uh, right off the bat. I mean, I told you earlier in this little analysis that uh, he had quite a drought up until that Monday night game where he broke the uh, the sackless streak. Early in the season when Joey Bosa was rushing opposite him, especially in that first game where he just got three sacks, I mean, pair those two up in the postseason and it is going to be a problem for no matter who they face. Again, pass rush, Creating turnovers in the playoffs, that is all your defense needs to do to win a football game. I guarantee you, if you can be one of the best defenses in the entire league in the regular season, an opportunistic defense with a great offense playing on the other side of the ball can come in and just fuck your shit up on a given day. That's just how the, it, that's just how it's historically been in the playoffs. I went over on Tuesday, so I'm not going to reiterate that point with uh, in relation to the, the Eagles and Cowboys. See that discussion from from Tuesday, but. You get it at this point. Rushing the passer, if you got Khalil Mack and Joey Bosa, that might be the scariest tandem of pass rushers in the entire league. That would be, of all of the the returning players, Rashawn Slater is very huge on the other side of the ball. But if Joey Bosa comes back and he plays at a high level, that's that could be the key to a Super Bowl run right there. And Chargers are getting healthy at the best possible time. There's a good chance that if we see all those players return, this could be a a get-hot-at-the-right-time sort of situation, uh, make a title run here. I think they got a real good shot, and that AFC playoff field just continues to look more and more daunting. Hell, even the AFC South, which you could say, oh, if the Titans win it, I'm not really scared of the Titans, but the Jags? Which usually you can't really say anything about the Jags, such a credit to what Doug Peterson's done over there. But if the Jags make the playoffs... I mean, look at what they've got. They could be a problem in the first round with that young talent. I mean, Trevor Lawrence, Travis Etienne, Evan Ingram, uh, Zay Jones, Marvin Jones, uh, not to mention all the, the the array of young, talented pass rushers they have on the defensive side of the ball. They could, I don't think they're going to make a deep run in the playoffs. I think... If any time they're going to make a deep run in the playoffs, I think it's next season uh, when they build a little bit more on what they've done this season. Uh, that being said, I think they've got the juice to come in, host a playoff game, and win in the first round, get to the second round, where, honestly, they're, they're inevitably going to get smacked by whoever they play in the second round, but I do think they can win a first-round game. The playoffs this year in both conferences, not just the AFC, the NFC is equally as crazy with the parity that's going on over there. You had... Three legitimate title contenders emerging over there in the Niners, the Cowboys, 
and the Eagles, and the Vikings are just sitting there at 12-3, and three, like, hey, we're probably going to get the two seed, probably going to get that, actually 13-2, and two, my bad, probably going to get a, a home playoff game all the way up until the Eagles. Either way, no one's, no one's really talking about us because of the uh, because of the, the secondary issues and the defensive woes, but we're still right there. We've still got a pretty good chance of making it all the way to the NFC Championship if we play our cards right. So the playoffs are just shaping up to be a wild ride, and I just simply cannot wait to watch it all unfold, man. It, it is going to be awesome. Uh, that being said, I guess we'll do a player of the game here. I mean, Keenan Allen, 11 receptions. 104 yards on the day. Also, Austin Eckler uh, with yeah, kind of kind of a light day on the reception side. Only four for 12 yards, but two touchdowns on the ground. 67 rushing yards. And again, I'm talking about that that, that offensive line. They only rushed for 3.2 yards per carry in this game. They did, to their credit, rush it 32 times more than they actually passed the ball, uh, but only rushed it for 3.2 yards. Rashawn Slater would help that immediately. But I digress. Don't want to spend too too much time on that one. What did I miss throughout the course of the week? There are a few uh, notable injuries that kind of flew under the radar for me when I recorded the other day. Uh, first off, Bengals big money right tackle Lyle Collins, done for the season with an ACL-MCL tear. Big loss there. Uh, he didn't play great at the start of the season, but he's been really rounding into shape as the season has gone on. Obviously, you still got the the left tackle whose name escapes me over there. Very, very good left tackle they got in with the Bengals, though. Um so I got no worries on that side, but whoever the backup for Lyle Collins is, they got to step up in a big, big way if this team wants to uh, live up to the playoff hopes that they've kind of been building here over the the, uh, the home stretch of the season. I mean, Joe Burrow is dealing in ways that he was dealing towards the end of last season, too. So looking forward to seeing how they kind of mitigate the impact of Lyle Collins going out for the season. But tough, tough loss over there for the uh, big money right tackle for the Bengals. Uh, next, we got Bucks down another offensive lineman. I watched this live, and I think I just kind of trauma blocked it out because of just the, the image that went through my head. But hey, uh, tackle Josh Wells. Uh, goes out for the season, tore his patellar tendon, uh, and this is one of those where they only showed it once on TV, man. The injury, uh, not great. The man tore his patellar tendon, dislocated his knee in the process, and let's just say you could see the knee as he fell down, and it certainly didn't look right. I'll just put it to you that way. You didn't, you didn't know exactly what was wrong, but you knew it wasn't exactly in the right place either. It was, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty jarring to see, uh, over there. But, uh, outside of that, uh, true nightmare fuel there, truly nightmare fuel for anyone who saw it. Outside of that though, uh, they're on either the third or fourth string left tackle at this point. Uh, Bucks might make the playoffs. Hell, they're going to host a playoff game if they do make the playoffs, but, um, this is quite a different situation from the Southern uh, Division with the Jags in the AFC. This is a pretty sad Bucks team. Pretty, pretty sad. I hate that. Uh, well, someone's gonna have to play this. Someone's gonna have to go to Tampa Bay and play this team in the postseason. I just have a, I have a feeling that if you keep it close with Brady, I've said it before. Keep it close with Brady. He's gonna come back and bite you in the ass down the stretch. But I digress on that front. Let's move on. Viking standout, young. Uh, I think he. I want to say James Lynch is a rookie, but James Lynch will miss the remainder of the regular season, should return for the postseason. I want to say, uh, I can't remember if it was a shoulder injury or what, but major enough to knock him out for the rest of the year, minor enough to where he can come back for the playoffs. Good news there. Uh, Not great news going into the Packers game, but... 
as long as we keep pace ahead of the uh, the 49ers, that's pretty much all that matters at this point going forward. Uh, J.J. Watt officially announced his retirement following the end of this season. Uh, definitely a Hall of Famer, and if I were voting, I might consider him a first ballot Hall of Famer at that. Just with the, the dominant stretch that he had in the prime of his career was just something else. 111 and a half total sacks uh, in his career. If he gets a half sack in either of the final two games, he will have his sixth career double-digit sack year in 12 seasons as a pro, and he's been through a whole lot of gnarly injuries and fought through a whole lot of stuff to get on the field. Three-time Defensive Player of the Year, and in the midst of his prime from 2012 to 2015, no one could touch him as far as being the best player in the entire league through that that course. Through that that whole four-year stretch, he wrecked offenses days like no one else. He had two different 20-sack seasons in that time frame. I mean, he absolutely controlled every game he was in. There's a reason he won three Defensive Player of the Year awards. Like I said, absolute shoo-in for the Hall of Fame. Only question now is, does he get in on the first ballot? There's probably going to be some competition. I would have to uh, go ahead and look and see who he's going to be going in with. That being said, got to be an argument for this guy as a first ballot Hall of Famer. May have to wait. He's going to get in the Hall of Fame, but got to at least look at him the first ballot in. uh, Very seriously give him consideration to put him in the Hall of Fame right away. Uh, Moving on, Tua enters the concussion protocol for the second time this season. Uh, You may remember the first concussion probably went misdiagnosed as a quote-unquote neck injury because I think Tua probably lied to the training staff. Uh, Second concussion is the one with the the fencing response where the the finger started flashing gang signs, but he didn't really actually want to flash gang signs. It was just a neurological response. You get it. Uh, That was ugly. It was scary. No one wants to see that. And now he's, I guess this is probably his second confirmed diagnosed concussion, third um, concussion overall that we can pretty definitively say definitely happened. Um, he had delayed onset symptoms, apparently, uh, went in on Monday evening, I, I quote unquote delayed onset symptoms. And I put that in quotations, not to cast aspersions on the Dolphins training staff, but because I know I... At this point, I think I understand. I've watched him enough in college. I've listened to him enough and watched him enough in the pros and both the press conferences and on the field. I think I got a pretty good gauge on who this guy is just by watching from afar. I know too is the type of guy that would hide concussion symptoms so that he could keep playing in this game. If he could hide the concussion symptoms, I think he's hiding them and I think he keeps on playing. Obviously not making any hard and fast accusations here because no evidence is probably ever going to present itself uh, to the contrary to either prove or disprove this. And I know that delayed onset is actually a legit thing, which is probably why you're never going to prove or disprove it. But in this particular case, knowing this particular player, I suspect he may have felt a little weird during the game, but waited till Monday to report it. Look at that Jair Alexander interception to end the game and tell me that doesn't, knowing in hindsight that he had a concussion, kind of uh, tell me that dude wasn't feeling a little bit weird when he made that throw. Again, very circumstantial evidence. Can't really make any hard and fast accusations, but if ever there was a player to hide concussion symptoms to stay in a game, one, I think probably a bunch of players would do that. But two, two is definitely near the top of the list of players who do that. I mean, you got to love his heart. Probably to his own detriment in this case, but 
it's it, it, third concussion of the season. Not great for Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Who's to say what his status is for this week against the Patriots? And with that, let's just hop straight into the uh, the playoff preview, shall we? It's on uh, December 31st, New Year's Eve. The ball is dropping, and so is the kick. I don't even know what I was even going for there. It was straight up off the top of my head. But uh, you know what? I'm just going to sit on that and uh, get a quick drink of Coke. Just give me quite, just one second. And yep. Playoff first round uh, semifinal games are on New Year's Eve. Like I said there before, I'm not even going to try to uh, redo the transition. I'm just going to get straight into the Fiesta Bowl, number three TCU versus number two Michigan. How does that sound? Uh, Of the two semifinal games, this one kind of feels like the uh, most likely to be close to me. I feel like the other one has a bit more potential for blowouts, but we'll get to that in just a second. Even with TCU having more cardiac event games than just about anyone else, They've got an NFL prospect at quarterback in Max Duggan, a probable top 10, maybe even top five pick in Quentin Johnston on the outside. The big question for TCU, if they want to pull out the upset, is how do they stymie Donovan Edwards and that Michigan running attack? I mean, you don't have Blake Corum, so that's a bit of a plus there. But Donovan Edwards is no slouch at the end of the day. I would anticipate TCU, uh, the, the TCU defensive staff, uh, to absolutely devour the first three quarters of that Ohio State tape uh, because they actually held down Donovan Edwards for three quarters before he ran for like 200 in the fourth quarter alone. They just they just let him go absolutely crazy down the stretch there. I guess they just got worn down, which is definitely a possibility in this game. The answer to stopping this run game lies somewhere in those first three quarters of the Michigan-Ohio State game, though. I think that's that's where they probably based a lot of their game planning for because no one else outside of that game except for, I think, maybe Illinois did and might be like one other team this season. You study those games where teams were successful and you see what you can take from that. Uh, very heavy on this Ohio State-Michigan game, though, I would imagine, just because it's more... It's more recent and it's more comparable to what you're going to see uh, on Saturday uh, with the talent level wise, I suppose. And I'm no schematic guru, so I will leave the strategizing to the people uh, who do that shit for a living. Uh, a leaving, yes. Uh, but first and foremost, you got to stop the run, man. I And I'm going to sound like a broken record all day saying that just based on what my analysis has been going through all these games. But furthermore, on top of stopping the run, we see that Michigan did see what Michigan did rather when the running game was taken away. They hit four pass plays of 50 plus yards and got touchdowns off of most of them, or at least three of them, I think, uh, and did something they hadn't shown all year. So in addition to stopping the run, you're going to have to trust your uh, defensive backs out on an island to make some plays against these Michigan receivers to hold up with J.J. McCarthy slinging that ball down the field. The running game is the main defensive priority, and as such, I would anticipate minimal help on the back end for these TCU corners. They're gonna have to. They're gonna have to make some plays out there. It's just the bottom line, and that to me is where the game will be won and lost for TCU. You can sell out and stop the run, and that's awesome. But if J.J. McCarthy is launching precision strikes downfield and getting big chunk plays for 40, 50, hell, even 30 yards, and they're just doing that at will anyways, this will still be a long, long day for TCU, and it's going to end up being a blowout if they're not careful. Luckily for the Horny Toads, though, Michigan has really only shown up and shown that capability once all year, and it was in, it was in the highest leverage moment, you could say, against Ohio State. 
but that doesn't mean they can't do it again. It just tells me that aspect of Michigan offense is slightly easier to defend than it may uh, than it may seem on the surface. And I do use the, the word easier very liberally in this instance because you gotta you gotta think you gotta take a look at this for a moment. They got a five star quarterback in JJ McCarthy thrown to some fast ass motherfuckers on the outside, man. So the the big play potential is there. They just haven't really shown it all year. You're gonna have to make some plays on the outside with those uh, those TCU corners if you want to win the day for TCU. And if TCU stops the running game, they've got a shot. If they stop the run and limit big plays in the pass, this TCU team may come out here and shock the world. For Michigan. On the other hand, this is going to be a game where their defense is going to be critical. They have to find a way to keep Quentin Johnston from completely taking over this game like he's done basically all year against every opponent. That guy is a freak. He is a monster. If you hadn't been introduced to Quentin Johnston, you're going to get a heavy dose of him in this one. Boy, I think you're going to like what you you see here. Uh, I know Kendra Miller. Uh, present some possible problems for you out of the backfield if you if you decide to shift resources stop the pass but much like that Michigan run game on the other side the Max Duggan Quentin Johnston connection could ruin Michigan State's entire defensive game plan if they're not careful and again much like that Michigan running game if you can't contain Quentin Johnston you don't have a prayer of stopping any of the other facets of this TCU offense just flat out I mean Quentin Johnston I think generally is the straw that stirs the drink. He really opens things up for everyone else. That's just what great players do. Um, All credit to Kendra Miller for the great season he's had, but he's really going to have to step up because I think Quentin Johnson is going to be the main focal point of that Michigan defense. Mark my words, the matchup that will dictate the course of this game, though, will 100% be that Michigan offensive line versus the front seven of TCU. If Michigan wins that battle, like they've done all year, basically, they're off for the races. If TCU, I mean, if they can battle into a stalemate or, God forbid, control the battle on the line of scrimmage and win it even, we are going to have a barn burner on our hands, folks. I'm not saying TCU is going to run away with this thing either, but if they can at least battle into a stalemate, we're going to have a good, good game on our hands, folks. Either way, this for my money, is the playoff game that is most likely to be close. And let's go over to the other one, which still has the potential to be good, but much more blowout potential, and that is the Peach Bowl between number four, Ohio State, and number one, Georgia. And it wasn't the path they envisioned, but chaos in the conference championship weekend worked out to benefit to the benefit of Ohio State as USC's loss cleared the path for the Buckeyes to sneak in the dance at that number four spot. And here they are facing off against Georgia. What's their reward for sneaking into the dance? They get to run face first into the buzzsaw. That is this defense on the Georgia sideline. I'm going to be honest here. I don't think six and a half is even enough points for this spread. I think, I think Georgia should be favored by double digits. I think I don't think Ohio State matches up well at all with this Georgia defense, and I don't just say that because they're the they're the UGA defense and they are the bullies of college football over the past several years, really since Kirby Smart got to town. I say that because I've been paying attention to C.J. Stroud all year, and the pattern in his play is clear if you go back and know what to look for. He doesn't like to get moved off the spot. 
He hates to run it. Just go look at his rushing stats. Won't take you a whole lot of convincing to see that. And every time he faced an above-average defense this year, he struggled in various capacities. Absolutely. I mean, he didn't necessarily have terrible numbers games all the time, but special situation with the win. He threw under 100 yards versus Northwestern, who absolutely stinks. Uh, against Rutgers, he threw just a shade over 150 yards. Uh, versus Maryland, Penn State, and Michigan, Stroud put up some yardage, but... He had a combined four touchdowns and two interceptions in four games. And to be fair, those interceptions, all of them did come in the Michigan game. But that may speak even more to the point I'm trying to make here. Not a set of performances you would expect from a Heisman finalist. And the through line with all of those teams is that they rank top 40 in total yards allowed. And I don't know if you've heard this, but Georgia definitely ranks well within the top 40 of yards allowed. Hell, even points allowed, I believe they are ranked well within the top 40, if if I'm not mistaken. Just going to go out on a limb there. That might be a hot take, a little spicy take there. But yeah, Georgia's defense, definitely top 40 in the nation. So it's pretty clear that C.J. Stroud struggles when he plays a defense that can keep things in front of them. Now he's about to face probably the best defense in the entire country and certainly the best defense he's faced thus far. I don't like how this is shaping up for the OSU offense, specifically C.J. Stroud. That being said, uh, to play the uh, play the optimistic card here on Ohio State side, there are still a couple things they can do to put themselves at least in good position to pull off the upset here. And I think they, they still got. I was very doom and gloom there, but they still got an opportunity to come out and win this thing. They're still a very talented team. They got a puncher's chance, if nothing else. And I. I'm never going to put it past them to maybe pull this one out. But first off, broken record time again. Uh, Got to load the box on this Georgia offense. Big shocker. And make make Stetson Bennett beat your corners. He is he has proven to be a very proficient corner, quarterback this season. But offense may have gotten uh, a lot of press this year. Uh, but that Ohio State defense is a talented unit, man. I'll tell you what. A guy like JT Tumalau is going to be critical when it comes to, to to winning the line of scrimmage battle. If he gets a big game and he has a big night, uh, that would go a long way towards making UGA uncomfortable. I just can't talk right now. But Stetson Bennett could still conceivably beat you. That being said, I'd make him prove that, he, that to you first before you go away uh, from stopping the run. I think first and foremost, make him prove it. Ohio State uh, is a quarterback factory. They have been for a long time, and I anticipate that trend to continue for the years and decades to come. This is a time where, where you need that talented secondary to step up in a big way and handle business on the outside without devoting extra resources on the back end. Also, those linebackers and safeties better be ready for all they can handle because Daryl Washington and Brock Bowers are coming. And I'm not talking about in the sexual way. I am talking about C-O-M-I-N-G, man. They are coming on the field. And Daryl Washington, first off, is basically just a more athletic offensive tackle. I mean, the dude is 6'8", damn near 300 pounds. Uh, he's got athleticism. He's got shoulders like an offensive tackle. He's got feet like an offense. Well, that's not necessarily a compliment. You know what I mean, though. He's got hands like an offensive tackle as far as blocking is concerned. And then he can go out and catch a few jump balls because he's a massive human being out there as well. Brock Bowers is just a freak. That dude is... That dude has got no business being as athletic and fast as he is with how goddamn massive and jacked he is. That... Brock Bowers is going to be a star at the NFL level. Mark my words. I, if he's not drafted 
in the top 10 or in the first round at the very least, I would be shocked. That is a star in the making right there. But if you can't slow down those two in Washington and Bowers, I doubt it will really matter how well you execute in stopping the run, quite frankly. But run should be the first priority. On offense, you have to win the line of scrimmage battle. C.J. Stroud gets a lot of the shine, but... When the going gets tough, Travion Henderson, Mayan Williams, and Dallin Hayden, as needed that is, uh, have been the guys that Ryan Day turned to this season. This, and really even before that, well, Dallin Hayden wasn't there, but Travion Henderson and Mayan Williams were a staple of this offense last year as freshmen coming in. And this is a more run-centric offense than I think a lot of people realize, quite frankly. All three of those guys I just mentioned, Henderson, Williams, and Hayden, uh, have over 500 rushing yards, at least five yards per carry, and have combined for 24 total rushing touchdowns this season. The popular take might be that C.J. Stroud has to torch this this Georgia secondary to get a win, just fight fire with fire, if you will. But quite to the contrary, I think success on the ground should be the starting point that Ryan Day builds off of. Big play shots to Emeka Ibuka, uh, Julian Fleming, and Belitnikoff runner-up Marvin Harrison Jr. may not materialize initially, but if you can force Georgia to send a couple extra couple extra guys down in the box, devote a couple extra resources there, opportunities will present themselves as the game wears on. It's just a matter of, of capitalizing on that 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 opportunity that does present itself it's up to cj stroud to step up and and hit, hit step up onto the stage rather and hit the shots when they come open it's all going to be on him when you get right down to it kind of playing off that theme in the ohio state offense i think georgia should take the contrarian stance on defense to start out and you know, C.J. Stroud has been less than stellar against quality defenses, and when the going has gotten tough, he's leaned on that running game, as I said before. So, contrary to the expected take that you would have uh, to stack coverage on these receivers to slow down that passing game, I think Georgia's uh, first and foremost should take away that running game and blitz the hell out of C.J. Stroud in obvious passing situations where you know they're not going to run. Without a running game to fall back on, Passing offense becomes easier to defend uh, for this Ohio State team. And if there is one simple formula that has seemed to throw off C.J. Stroud, it's sending pressure and forcing him to move off his spot, which which I alluded to before. Stroud hates to do that. And one-on-ones with the Ohio State receiving core, I understand. That is a daunting task. That is three legitimate NFL caliber wide receivers over there that Ohio State has right now with Fleming, Abuka, and... Um, Marvin Harrison, of course, the most notable one escapes my, my mind there. But if there's one, if there was ever one defense in the country that can pull it off, those one-on-ones with the outside, it's that, it's this Georgia group because they too have some, have some NFL guys on the outside. I'll tell you what, they're allowing just a shade over six yards per pass attempt, uh, about 215 yards per game. And that's against some really, really solid QB competition. They held Hendon Hooker to under 200 yards with no touchdowns and an interception. In week one, they held Bo Nix to just uh, just a shade over 170 with two interceptions. Anthony Richardson put up some yards but failed to complete over 50% of his passes. And my boy, Will Rogers, put up 261 yards, no interceptions, but... Well, actually, I think one interception, but 5.1 uh, yards per attempt. I could keep going because there are more on the list that they have dominated but you get the picture. You understand. Time and again, this secondary has gone toe-to-toe with 
very talented quarterbacks this season and stonewalled every single one that has stepped up to the plate thus far, except maybe Garrett Nussmeyer in the SEC title game, who, one, wasn't game planned for, just Jaden Daniels got hurt in the game, and two, still lost by 20 points. Didn't really matter. A whole lot of garbage time yardage there as well. So not a single quarterback has really come in and played well against this Georgia defense. With a pedigree like that, I say you risk it for the biscuit. Focus on the run first and foremost. Try to stop the run before anything else and just let your secondary be the freaks that they are. If Stroud gashes you for a few big plays out of the gate, as a result, you can adjust accordingly. But make him prove that he can buck a season-long trend before you make that adjustment. That is all I'm saying there. I have a hard time seeing Ohio State get going in this one, quite frankly. I think Georgia's defense may have a hiccup or two. It's kind of expected with against this kind of uh, this this vaunted Ohio State offense. But overall, I expect them to be dominant in this one. I see C.J. Stroud getting pressured often. Uh, I see him struggling as a result. And I think Georgia's offense is going to be progressively wearing down on this Ohio State defense until their back just breaks at some point in the second half. Don't know when, don't know how it's going to happen, but it just feels like at some point you're just going to get either it's going to be a big play from Brock Bowers or you just get a big old run from Kenny McIntosh straight up the middle. Something's going to happen where the floodgates will start, I think. And I think uh, I'm picking Georgia to win. I think they cover. I don't know if this is going to actually be particularly close. OSU always has a puncher's chance uh, with that offense, but uh, they're facing a bit of an uphill battle in this one. And uh, with that, that's that's your playoff matchups for you folks. I think it's probably first one's going to be a good game. Second one, I think Georgia's probably going to end up uh, cruising. But still, Ohio State, a puncher's chance. I don't want to count them out. There's a reason this line is as close as it is, because they're a very talented football team. And Vegas has got a hedge on that. That being said... I think Georgia is just that much more talented. And with that, let's move on to part two of the bowl season preview separate from the college football playoff. And on on that same day, December 31st, New Year's Eve, the ball is dropping. You're sipping champagne. You're kissing no one because you're all alone and dead inside. But you got the Sugar Bowl. You got football, number five, Alabama versus number nine, K-State, to keep you company, am I right? Uh, All of the big-time draft prospects are going to play for Bama, uh, more namely Bryce Young and Will Anderson, I believe, also, um, Jameer Gibbs is playing in this one as well. I could be wrong on that one. He might have skipped the bowl game. He's a running back, so I would understand that one. You want to put as, as few hits on your body as possible before you get in the NFL. Uh, that's that's really the reality of the ec- economics there. You just want to get as many hits in the NFL as possible. Keep the uh, keep the hits to a minimum when you're not really getting paid a whole lot in college. Um, that being said... K-State also isn't really the type of program where you see a whole lot of that either. So the one guy I could have seen sitting out for them is Deuce Vaughn, but he appears to be a full go. So we got a full strength uh, team matchup in this one. Looks like Will Howard, well, relatively speaking with all transfer portal departures, but it looks like Will Howard is going to start at QB with a package for Adrian Martinez throughout this game. Uh, Should be interesting to see how they incorporate Martinez in this one. I Generally of the belief, if you have two QBs, you got no QBs, but hey, maybe they can kind of provide a Taysom Hill role for them. I, I don't know. Kind of a interesting situation. We'll have to see how that one ends up working out. Either way, K-State is going to need 
big-time quarterback play to uh, complement the running abilities of Deuce Vaughn. Keep in mind that, yes, this is a very talented Bama, Bama defense, rather, but they have been straight-up gashed on multiple occasions, and there's pretty strong whispers that the defensive coordinator is going to be replaced after this game. Also, Butchim Bill O'Brien looks to be the next, next in line to make a reunion over in New England and be the, be the offensive coordinator over there. That would be like, reunited and it feels so good. Reunited, I kick Matt Patricia to the curb. I, I don't really know how to, bad at freestyling. Probably shouldn't have even started that, but either way, uh, where was I even at before I got on that, that little, uh, tangent there? Uh, there, there's gonna be holes to exploit in this defense. That was, that's where I was. The main goal is for the quarterback, whether that be Will Howard or Adrian Martinez, to take advantage of those opportunities when they present themselves. They will be there. You just gotta capitalize when they pop up. If they can't execute against this unit, Bryce Young in that offense, Shorthanded as they may be with all the transfer portal uh, departures between uh, uh, JoJo Earl, who I believe was their number one receiver uh, going into the portal. I think there were other receivers that went into the portal too. Um, even with all of that, I think they're going to have zero mercy on the other side of the ball, quite frankly. Truthfully, I think Bama will probably win, and I don't know if they'll cover I really don't. I, I certainly think there is a clear path to victory for K-State, though. I need a big day, or you need a big day from Deuce Vaughn if you're K-State. Without that, they're screwed anyways. You're going to need Deuce Vaughn to go off for one of those 120, 140-yard performances, well, like six yards per carry or something like that. And once they've established Vaughn's presence, both out of the backfield and through the tackles, too, very versatile running back, That talking about that with Austin Eckler, that'll serve him well whenever, wherever he goes to the next level because he's going to be somewhere, I'll tell you that much. They can start going big game hunting and go for some deep shots once Vaughn is in the game and they have to account for him. The main thing, though, is to play ball control. Milk the clock, only take shots when they present themselves. Forced passes are exactly what this Bama secondary wants. They are waiting. They are they're sitting on it, waiting for you to throw a bad pass and just take it the other way and take advantage of your mistakes, quite frankly. Like I said... The opportunities will be there at some point in this game. It's all a matter of how patient Will Howard and uh, Adrian Martinez will be to exploit those uh, those opportunities. I could certainly see a reality where Bama just stonewalls K-State's ground game and runs away with it, but K-State has shown time and again this season that they won't just roll over. I think this ends up being a close game. I think K-State's got a good opportunity to win. They have a sneaky, sneaky good team. They beat TCU in overtime in the Big 12 championship game. They're ranked top 10 now. Hell, Adrian Martinez has been out the whole year, but Will Howard has been a revelation back there. Solid quarterback back there for the next generation. Whenever Adrian Martinez moves on to the, the next phase in his life, that's going to be a fun one. I, I, I hope Bama doesn't come out and just boat race him as they are want to do in these bowl games. I'm, I'm hoping, just hoping beyond hope that this is a very good game. I think it will end up being that. And we're going to skip over New Year's Day because NFL is king, my friends. But moving on to Monday the 2nd, we have got the ReliaQuest Bowl with number 22 Mississippi State taking on Illinois, the fighting Illini and the fighting Brett Bielema's more accurately. And the moment I've been waiting for all bowl season, time to say one last ode 
to Mike Leach and finish that season out in the bowl game. The ReliaQuest Bowl, definitely a company I've heard of before. Don't know what they do, but just going to take a wild guess, throw a blind dart at the dartboard, and say they sell insurance. That seems like a pretty safe guess based on how their name sounds, I suppose. Um, and what's more, it's confirmed your boy as the dog just kind of shakes around her collar in the background. I'm going to give her pets anyways because she's a good sweet girl. I'll tell you what, that's a, that's a good sweet Riley girl right there. But it's confirmed your boy will be on hand in Tampa, Florida, sitting in the lower bowl at Raymond James Stadium to catch this one firsthand as we send Mike Leach off the right way. Cannot wait to watch this one. This is the first Mississippi State game I've been to since Dan Mullins returned to Starkville with Florida back in 2018. And I don't know if I could pick a better game to go to, quite frankly. Yes, it's kind of a pity bowl. No, no question about it. No, it doesn't technically mean anything. And I really only mean technically on that statement. But I think that atmosphere is going to be special, sending off Mike Leach. I might be wrong on that. It is it is a bowl at the end of the day, so maybe some people won't show up. But I just got a feeling that all the guys that are playing in this bowl game, they've straight up said we're playing for Mike Leach. I think the fans are going to very much appreciate that. I think they're going to show out. I know I certainly am going to show out and show my appreciation when I get there. I think... The players are going to fight harder than they have all season. I think Zach Arnett and that coaching staff rightly see this game as a springboard into the new regime starting next season. They've already had a great recruiting class uh, starting off much better than I thought that they would do in recruiting the state of Mississippi. Got half of the top 25 players in the state in the National Signing Day. I mean, coups across the board as far as our recruiting expectations were after our coach straight up died and we had no AD to, uh, to account for there. I don't know how this all ends up, but I can I can tell these guys are going to go hard for Coach Leach. It just feels like that's going to be the case. I don't know what Illinois is going to do to stop us, but more than anything, getting to the football here, I'm interested, interested to see how Mississippi State approaches the offense with the play caller having been Mike Leach, you know, the guy, the guy that is no longer there anymore. More than anything, I, I anticipate the same old story for Arnett's defense. I I could see them going in a different direction depending on the offense of what they want to do uh, on what Arnett wants to accomplish in this one. Does he want to go into the new regime, uh, try to give you a vision of the future, or does he want to give you one last uh, holdover with what the personnel is? The future of this program is going to be defense and running game with play action shots when they present themselves. If you want to, if you want evidence as to why I make that assertion, look no further than Zach Garnett's first recruiting class so far. National Signing Day, it's a bunch of defensive players and gigantic offensive linemen, almost exclusively, almost without exception. I think we might have gotten a receiver in there, uh, maybe uh, a couple speedy guys, but mostly just big boys coming in and defensive players. So with that in mind, wouldn't be shocked that they just leaned in on the running game in this one and gave you a vision of the future. That being said, the personnel on this offense was put together and built for an air raid system. So I'm not sure how feasible it's going to be to just immediately turn into a run first football team and go in the exact opposite direction of what an air raid is. So I also wouldn't be shocked if they just promoted an interim guy to, st- to call an air raid offense for one last game. Also, would kind of be a very fitting way to send off Mike Leach, especially if they end up winning this thing and pulling it out. That being said, 
For me, it seems like a very manageable assignment with the way Mississippi State's defense has played all season, but Illinois has the potential to just bully us out of the stadium, quite frankly. They've done it to teams all year. They were much better at it earlier in the season, stumbled down the stretch, but have still been very, uh, very good at their style throughout the season. There's a reason they got to the bowl game in the first place. We get a boost with Chase Brown wisely getting his money uh, as quickly as he humanly can and foregoing the bowl game to focus on the NFL draft. That being said, I would expect pretty much the same strategy on offense, pretty much no matter who they start at running back. I think it's just going to be, you know, they're running it at us 40 to 50 times. And if we can stymie that running game, we got a shot at pulling away. That's the main thing. If we can hold them to basically under four yards of carry, the world is our oyster, our oyster I think. If Illinois takes control of this game with that Bielema ball strategy, though, this is going to turn into a rock fight real quick. And I think Arnett is equipped to, to get into that rock fight and still come out victorious with that defense. But make no mistake about it, this can turn into a low-scoring physical ball game very, very quickly. I think turning this game into a rock fight is Illinois' path to victory here. I'm not entirely sure how that Illinois defense will fare against SEC competition, but I would imagine they hold their own. They've been very good this season. If not... They weren't going to lose. They were going to lose this game anyways. Rather, pardon me. I think this game turns into a defensive struggle. Quite, quite frankly, that just kind of feels like how this is. Both of these coaches kind of want it to go, and I think Mississippi State has what it takes to outlast Illinois with that style. But it's going to be a physical battle until the very end, the very final whistle. My biased mind wants to pick Mississippi State, but my objective mind knows that this game is essentially a toss-up with the offensive lim- in limbo at, at Mississippi State and the sheer physicality with which that uh, that Illinois team performs. I am interested to watch this one. Like I said, going to be on hand to watch it live, so I cannot wait to get one last uh, one last look at the Mississippi State team this year before we go head into a, a brand new regime over there. Interested to see how this whole thing goes. But that being said, let's move on from the ReliQuest Bowl to a slightly more consequential bowl game, uh, the Cotton Bowl, and that is number 16 Tulane, who's had a hell of a season, versus number 10 USC, who was in playoff position but just stumbled there in the final week. I have no idea how they went from basically the number four team to number 10 in the country. That seems a, a little bit out of whack, but I digress. I, I digress on that front. Um, always kind of my favorite New Year's Six Bowl game, honestly, as, as far as a, a concept is concerned. it's um, If you don't know how this, this bowl game works and how it's selected, it's basically a matchup of the highest ranked group of five team that's not in the playoff versus the Pac-12 runner-up, which probably never going to be in the playoff if you're the Pac-12 runner-up. So I digress on that front. As a guy who has always rooted instinctively for mid-majors and uh, and underdogs, this has always held a, a special place in my heart, this, this Cotton Bowl. It's a chance for non-Power 5 programs to go toe-to-toe with the uh, the big boys and prove they have what it takes to hang with, the, with them, quite frankly. And sometimes it's a blowout, sometimes it's an absolute thriller. Hell, sometimes it's a blowout in the opposite direction of what you may expect. The group of five teams sometimes comes out and proves that they are as good as they looked all season. Either way, we get to see what these teams that we've wondered about all season are actually really made of. That's what makes this game fun for me, the finding out what you've got in the box that you've been you've been dying to open all season. In this this one, however, Lord help Tulane because they are going to have their hands full with Caleb Williams in that USC offense. It is going to be 
a, a hell of a day for them. And given their past track record against teams like UCF, Southern Miss, hell, even lowly, lowly USF, South Florida, who won like two games this year, I don't I also scored 31 points. I don't like their chances of slowing down USC based on those performances. So in that spirit, Tulane is going to have to roll with the punches here and try to win a shootout, even though that is exactly what USC wants. I think they have the personnel to possibly make it happen, though. With Michael Pratt at quarterback, 35 touchdowns this season. Uh, got a running back uh, in Tajay Spears, who's rushed, rushed for nearly 1,400 yards, 6.5 yards per carry, 17 total touchdowns. That's 15 on the ground to receiving and got a solid group of receivers around them as well. USC is prolific at turning the ball over and, and getting takeaways, but you generally don't have that knack without giving up some big plays in the back end. Tulane is going to have to get some, some of those opportunities and take advantage of them to put up points, and they're also going to have to get some uh, have they're going to have some golden opportunities to shoot themselves in the foot if they're not careful. They're going to just going to have to steer around those pitfalls if they can. Michael Pratt has been money this season, only throwing five picks, but this is the most ball-hungry group uh, uh, that he's faced all year. Get your mind out of the gutter on that one. He's going to need to be efficient yet again to have a, a chance without a win. Or what did I, what did I even say? He's going to need to be efficient yet again to have a chance without a win. That doesn't even make sense. I don't know why I even wrote that. For them to have a chance to win is what I meant to say. He's going to have to be efficient. He cannot turn the ball over in this one. Wow. Writing's hard sometimes, folks. I mean, putting words together, it is certainly it's a difficult time. I digress, though. It's pretty much the exact same thing or the exact thing that USC wants, but Pretty much their only shot to win this, as I see it, is to play discipline, but make it a track meet and get it scoring. Then make a couple defensive plays down the stretch, and you're in business. Pretty simple, right? As for USC, you essentially just need to play your game. Caleb Williams uh, and the offense are going to get theirs. I, they're going to put up points. You just need to, that defense to do what they do. Force a couple turnovers, win the turnover battle in turn, and make just enough plays to allow the offense to pull away down the stretch. I am firmly in the shootout or blowout mode with this matchup. I don't know what it's going to be, but I feel like it's either going to be high scoring or it's going to be a snoozer. That's that's really the gist of it. I think and hope this will be fun. It'll be a shootout, but this could get ugly real fast if Tulane doesn't take care of the ball. Interested to see how this one plays out. Of course, I'll probably be watching it because, like I said, I love the concept of Group of Five versus Power Five uh, and just testing their metal in the Group of Five, quite frankly. But moving on from that one, let's look at the Rose Bowl, the granddaddy of them all, as they say back in the day there, filler. Uh, number 11, Penn State taking on uh, the Pac-12 champion, number 8, Utah. Probably should have included this one earlier, but your boy just went down the time slots without any game prioritization for uh, the second. So, I, I know, I know, Riley, you could say that again. Uh, seeing as this one is the nightcap, let's talk about the Rose Bowl last, shall we? Better late than never, huh? Uh, sneaky solid QB matchup in this one between Sean Clifford for Penn State. Cam Rising for Utah. Two guys coming together from opposite coasts, meeting somewhere west of Utah for some reason. It's tradition. I understand. It's the tournament of the it's the tournament of the roses. You know how it is. But two guys that don't get a whole lot of national pub in Clifford and and Rising 
but both are strong runners who can really threaten the defense with their arm as well. That Ohio State game and the Michigan game may be all that you remember from Sean Clifford this season, but outside of those two games, he has gone for 24 total touchdowns, 19 through the air, five on the ground, just four interceptions, and the team has gone 10-0 in those other 10 games this season. As for Cam Rising, I think it comes down to West Coast bias more than anything else because this guy is, is fantastic. The analysts on the East Coast are just not staying up late enough to get their eyes on him because he is so good. He's basically had one terrible game versus Oregon, call a spade a spade, uh, and one lackluster uh, day and maybe the most adverse situation to start a season ever on the road at Florida, going from the dry, high desert to the swamp across two time zones. Quite a feat if you could win that one, but they didn't. And he has otherwise been on fire this season as Cam Rising. Outside of the Oregon game, Rising has put up 31 total touchdowns. Uh, that's 25 through the air, 6 on the ground. It is 4 interceptions while getting 6 yards per carry, even with the weird way rushing stats are recorded in college. That's really that's really bit Sean Clifford in the ass with his rushing uh, numbers. It hasn't bit uh, hasn't bit Cam Rising in the ass, and you know part of that is he's only been sacked eight times in twelve games, which is insane in its own right. That that Utah offensive line has to be playing out of its mind right now for my money, and he just exclusive he just came off of completely eviscerating USC second a, a USC secondary rather uh, to the tune of three touchdowns and zero interceptions for the FBS leader in takeaways, uh, that USC defense. Both defenses in this game are formidable, but I think this has the potential to turn into a wild one with the QBs we've got on hand. It should be a treat. For Penn State, I sound like a broken record here, and I've said it a million times in this damn episode, but it's especially applicable against Utah. They need to keep Utah from running all over them because that's the game plan. It's the game plan every single week. They're basically for Utah. We're going to make you stop the run if you can. Kudos to you. We'll we'll let Cam Rising do his thing. But first and foremost, we want to run the damn football. And Cam Rising has the ability to carry Utah all by himself uh, if you if you need him to. But he plays his best when, when his play is taking a backseat to the running game. The Utes are 6-0 and in games this year where Cam Rising has thrown 30 or fewer passing attempts. And in those games, Rising has thrown 16 touchdowns and one interception while completing 68.2% of his passes. That's better across the board than what he usually does when he throws more than that. If you let Utah run the ball, they will, I guarantee it, will bury you. So, yeah. I know it's been a consistent theme with my strategy recommendations in this episode, but it's more applicable here than just about anywhere else outside of maybe Michigan. You stop the run, then you worry about the pass later because the run is the first and foremost on Utah's menu there. Cam Rising can beat you with his arm, but fact is, all three of Utah's losses have come when Rising has been forced to to pass them to a victory, throw over 30 pass attempts, if you will. Then on the other side of the ball, Utah has a tough defense, but Sean Clifford is going to have to find a way to push the ball down the field. Utah has had a stingy secondary all year, but they've been challenged by solid quarterbacks. Jaden Delora, I mean, obviously Caleb Williams, um, Bo Nix has challenged them in in this season. Well, actually, I'm not sure if Bo Nix actually played in that game. I digress, though. You understand quality QBs have given Utah problems this season. Penn State has an okay running game, but 
they will be running into the uh, the teeth of that Utah rush defense that has been the staple of that defense, uh, allowing less than four yards per carry. I have a feeling that if Penn State is going to pull this off, it'll be on the back of some clutch throws from Sean Clifford. I don't know if they're going to get a whole lot of momentum on the ground, so Sean Clifford is going to have to make some plays to win this one, I think. And for Utah... It all starts with the running game and play action on offense. It's been their bread and butter all year pretty much, and I don't expect that to change now that they're in the Rose Bowl. When the run game gets going, Cam Rising plays his best football, and the defense stays well-rested and ready to cause pain to that Penn State offense on the other side. And important to note for that defense, they need to force Sean Clifford into some errant throws. He historically uh, has been a good decision maker, but consistent accuracy has been an issue for him, and that's really never gone away. Uh, I expect him to have a fair degree of success uh, stopping Penn State on the ground, but if they want to go for the jugular and kind of put this game to bed, they got to take the ball away, in my opinion. It all starts with the running game on offense. If that running game is, is humming, Every facet of this Utah team gets better. And I mean every single facet from the direct offensive implications to the special teams to the defense. Everybody is better when this Utah running game is is playing up to its potential. Overall, I think this is going to be a good game that comes down to which quarterback outduels the other down the stretch. And I just simply have more faith in Cam Rising's arms than I, than I do uh, Sean Clifford. So I expect Utah to get the dub in this one. And with that... I got some gambling picks for you, but I'm going to leave that for a uh, future Caleb because, oh, spoiler alert, I'm recording this a whole, like, oh, two nights before it actually comes out. So uh, I will just toss it over to future Caleb to uh, finish it out, get you the official picks, and uh, get you a uh, get you a fun fact on the way outdoor. Out, out the door, rather. Jeez, it's easy for me to say. But, hey, take it away, Caleb. Alrighty, thank you, Caleb. I will take it from here. You're doing a great job. Don't let anyone tell you different. All right, hey, uh, here it is, Caleb again, just back 22 hours or so in the future. Uh, got a couple things to update before we get straight into the official picks. First and foremost, bunch of injury and benching news. Couple headlines here. First off, Ryan Jensen off IR. Can't remember if I said that on Tuesday's episode, so I'll just include it here. Off IR, they opened his practice window. Irv Smith. Same deal for the uh, for the Vikings. Hey, remember Irv Smith? Remember when he was the tight end for the Vikings way back when for a couple snaps before he hurt himself? He's back. And uh, hey, pairing him opposite of TJ Hawkinson, maybe, maybe less reps will get him less hurt in the long run. Maybe. We'll have to see what happens there. And uh, Derek Carr, That's this is the biggest news of the day, getting benched for the final two games um, in favor of Jarrett Stidham over there with the Vegas Raiders. And interesting to note there, Derek Carr did sign an extension this offseason, but an incredibly team-friendly contract this offseason. I believe, basically, if he doesn't pass a physical after this year, which is what they're kind of setting up with this... um, with this move to kind of not have him start for the the last couple games, if he can't pass a physical at the end of this year, they will be they'll be able to get off the hook for uh, quite a bit of his salary, like forty million dollars, I believe, if they part ways with him this offseason with a uh, designation of failed physical. Um, 
that that was the deal that he signed. Everyone knew it was a team-friendly deal when he signed it, and he put himself in this position, so I guess he made the bed. You got to sleep in it now. That being said, reading the tea leaves here, doesn't look like Derek Carr is going to be in Vegas for much longer. Kind of thought that was going to happen, happen based on just the new regime, everything they've been doing with contracts, and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, want a clean slate, all that good stuff. Uh, can't blame him here, especially with how bad Derek Carr has been this year. But hey, on from that, there's your updates for you. Let's move into the official picks. Uh, last week, uh, let's look at what we did there. Three and three. Shout out to Trace McStorley and Noodle Arm Brady for going to overtime and still hitting the under. Uh, 38 and 38 overall. So we are just hammering that 500 once again, trying to get to that next level. Maybe today, maybe this week we'll go five and one. Oh man, maybe we'll go six and oh. Who's to say? But with that said, Let's get right into these suckers, shall we? First off, for the favorite, we have got Falcons minus three. I told y'all on Tuesday that I think Desmond Ritter is due for a breakout game, and the Cardinals losing Buda Baker on the back end only makes that more likely in my mind. Whether it's Colt McCoy or Trace McSorley for the Cards, we'll just have to see what happens with the uh, concussion protocol over there. This feels like the spot where Desmond Ritter has his best game, yet I think the Falcons end up winning this one uh, comfortably as a result. And we'll see if he can build a, a little bit of momentum in these last two games towards next year. It's going to be interesting, especially in these next two games. I think he's kind of gotten his feet wet, gotten maybe not seasoned necessarily isn't the right word, but he's gotten settled into a point where we can start seeing some serious development and improvement from Desmond Ritter going forward. This is definitely a, uh, a prove-it stretch here in these last two weeks, so I am very interested to see what the young rookie does over there. Product out of Cincinnati, a very good decision maker. We'll just have to see what Artie Smith can do with them out there. I'm looking forward to seeing. Uh, underdog, I'm getting uh, Rams plus six and a half. You know what? I am putting myself in quite a spot picking the Rams right now. They are they could be bad. They they could be bad. Uh, I could either look like a genius uh, or a fool, but I like the way the Rams, this Rams team is playing right now. Cam Akers just absolutely torched one of the better defenses in the league and has really been hitting his stride here recently. Hey, they reconciled their differences. Good for them. And it's really paid dividends for everyone involved here. Maybe Cam Akers doesn't come back to the Rams, but he's certainly putting on some good tape for whoever might sign him this offseason. As for Baker Mayfield, he seems to be in the midst of a mini hot streak here, and I want to just capitalize on that while I can, though the prospect of Khalil Mack getting after him off the edge does worry me admittedly. That being said, Khalil Mack has been on a cold streak up until last week, so Joey Bose is not there on the other side. So right now, I'm feeling the Rams at plus six. And, and on the flip side, Chargers don't really have anything to actually play for in this when you actually get right down to it. They've clinched the playoff spot, but division titles completely out of reach. Just put that out of your mind. Now they're basically just playing to see where they play in the wild card round, where they go to play in the wild card round. I don't expect the Rams to win this outright, but if nothing else, I think they can keep it within a touchdown. Uh, so they're my underdog pick in this one, especially since it's not actually a road game. They're still playing in SoFi, so regardless of who the road team is, doesn't matter. They're on basically a neutral site because no one no one follows either of these teams in the first place. Though I assume just by the, the aggregation of both of those fan bases coming together, you're going to get a full stadium just by default, but probably you're going to get 
roughly half the fans in in the entire area of Los Angeles over there with about like 50,000 or whatever. I don't know. I digress, though. Um, I would expect as much of a Rams presence as there is a Chargers presence in the stadium is the point of that, though. But let's move on. Uh, for my overpick, Jets versus Seahawks. And, of course, going back to the well with them because – like I noticed a couple weeks ago, their defense does still stink. They're back to their, their losing ways over there in Seattle. Uh, White Mike is back, uh, and as such, I think this Jets offense will score some points on Seattle. The Seahawks offense faces a tall task with the Jets defense, but... This number is low enough to where they only need a couple big plays for the over to hit. Mike Mike White, I think he's going to orchestrate the offense well enough to where he's going to score a good amount of points. The Seahawks just have to hold up their end of the bargain and get this thing to 43 or more, and then we'll see. But yeah, over 42.5, I love that pick. For my under, um, I was originally on the uh, Raiders versus... Who are they playing this week? I, I can't quite remember. It's already out of my mind. But that being said, it was at like, oh yeah, it was Raiders versus 49ers. It was at like 44 and a half points. When I looked at it, dropped all like three points down, uh, three or four points down after the uh, Derek Carr news. So I'm staying away from that just because I don't know that the, the 49ers could score 35 on them then, then. All, all the all the Raiders have to do is score one touchdown or like three field goals, and the under is dead right there. So I, I want to stay away from that one. Instead, I picked up the Dolphins versus Patriots under forty one and a half, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put it to you this way: Mac Jones versus Teddy Bridgewater and in an interdivisional game for Bill Belichick. Need I say more? Yeah, I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory there in and of itself. Not a whole lot of points are going to be scored in this game. It's going to be cold up there in New England. Under 41.5 is a pretty tasty little morsel, if I do say so myself, for that Dolphins versus Patriots. Uh, For Thursday night, uh, in spite of the uh, ongoing injury news for Ryan Tannehill, uh, Malik Willis starting pretty much officially for the Titans on Thursday. Uh, over 40 and a half. I'm stepping right in front of that freight train. This Titans secondary is still some cheeks. And the Cowboys have been scoring at a prolific rate. Dak Prescott has been dicing up bad secondaries. I'll tell you that much. And this certainly fits the criteria there. I expect them to score at least 30 on their own. Then on the flip side, the Cowboys defense has been free access to all corners for a while now, or all comers, rather, for a while now. Uh, They rush the passer, they turn the ball over, but give up a hell of a lot of points. They did it to the Texans, for God's sake. I don't necessarily expect the Titans offense to be firing on all cylinders, but if they can eke out like two touchdowns, I feel pretty strongly about this over. I would bet the spread, but 10.5 is is just a giant number, and I simply don't trust the Cowboys enough to bet on them uh, to win by a large margin like that. So, over 40.5 it is for Thursday night. Again, betting over on a Thursday night game. Just, again, stepping right in front of a freight train, but I feel good about this. It's a low number, so not a high bar to clear there. And for my bonus pick this week, I mean, if, if you saw this on the slate and you know anything about this podcast, you knew where I was going with the bonus pick. Hell, you're probably, you're probably shocked I didn't put it as my over, 
but I'm putting it here in the bonus anyways because I still love it. Bears versus Lions, and it's a giant number at 52.5, but I still don't think it's enough. This one is just a fun pick, man. I am, I'm looking forward to watching this game just because I don't know how good either of these teams are right now. The Lions are playing their ass off right now. The Bears kind of just stink. They have a fun offense, but defense is just atrocious. But that's part of why I'm, I'm picking this one. They're in Detroit, so they'll be playing indoors. No need to worry about the weather at all. And need I remind everyone that each of these defenses last week did the following. Bears got run out of the building in the second half, allowing 29 points in the final 39 or final 30 minutes, rather. Uh, meanwhile, the Lions gave up 37 to the Panther, Panthers, who are starting Sam Darnold and ran for roughly a mile on the ground. So, of course, the Lions' offense has been firing on all cylinders for pretty much the entire season uh, or for entire second half of the year. Excuse me, but. Even for the inconsistent Bears offense, their number one strength. What do you think of when you think of the Bears this season? It is running the ball, running it right down your throat. You don't necessarily think of the passing, right? Which the Lions are terrible at. They do not stop the run at all. Not to mention, they just brought back Khalil Herbert off of IR, who he's made some, he was well on his way. He looked explosive earlier in the season before he got hurt. He was well on his way to stealing that starting job from David Montgomery before he got injured this, this earlier this year, in my opinion. I think adding him back in the lineup is going to be juicy for this Bears offense. 52.5 is a lot of points, but give them all to me. I love it. This is a really high number for an NFL game, but I mean, it's going to be a good old-fashioned shootout, so give me the over, baby. I'm trying to have a good time, and to summarize it all up, we have got Falcons minus three, Rams plus six and a half, Jets, uh, Jets, Seahawks over 42 and a half, Dolphins, Patriots under 41 and a half, Cowboys, Titans over 39 and a half, got that wrong in the uh, official pitch, it's actually down to 39, so scratch what I said about the earlier number. Over 39 and a half, even juicier number there. So I'll take that every day. Uh, Lion or Bears Lions, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, over 52 and a half. And there you have it right there. Six picks. Hopefully we go 6-0. Fingers crossed either way. That is all for this episode. If you enjoyed, subscribe. It'll be a five-star rating so we can grow this bad boy just a little bit. If you didn't enjoy it, can't blame you, but uh, keep your mouth shut and keep it moving, my guy. Uh, take that opinion to the grave. Tell no one. Tell, tell, tell everyone you loved it anyways because I'm trying to build this thing and build it up strong, my friend. And I release episodes twice a week. All year, pretty much, not during the football season. I need to change that part of the outro. But, hey, NFL on Tuesdays, college football, plus Monday night recap on Thursdays, at least until the college football season is over. Any changes, uh, I'll let you know as they occur, all right? Follow me on my socials at Caleb Verzak. Link will be in the description so you don't have to spell my fucked up Eastern block name. If you want to contact the show, shoot me an email at unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. Or, hell, you can just shoot me a DM on Twitter. I'll probably be more responsive that way anyways. Just put business or show in all caps to start the subject line if you do decide to email me. So you can be categorized accordingly that way. And, uh, anyways, thank you so much for tuning into Unqualified Analysis. And, as always, I've got zero clue what I'm talking about, but I'm trying my best. And uh, one thing I learned this week, South Africa has three capital cities. One, Cape Town, two, Pretoria, and three, the funnest name of them all, Bloemfontein. What a name. And uh, I don't know why they have three capitals, but uh, that's a hell of a lot of capitals right there. See you, folks. Not, don't have any more explanation than that.